are the Coin Boys, your average everyday crypto bros. That's right. It's Andy, aka producer, by the way, or producer BTW on Twitter. And sitting right next to me is Daniel. Yes. Daniel. I'm next to you this time, my friend. Daniel Gutierrez. What's up at dgutierrez84 on Twitter? What's up, man? Uh, how you doing, man? Good. This is a Wednesday episode, huh? It's a Wednesday episode. Well, for good reason. Very good reason, and we want to apologize. This is probably one of the first weeks we haven't had a Monday or Tuesday episode, but we have special circumstances because, as you saw on the top of this uh, or on the thumbnail on this podcast, it's Blockfolio, and I just want to bring everyone back in and remind everyone that we have our main hub. It's the CoinBoys.com. Everything's there: SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play. You could even We're listen. We're now on Spotify. Oh We're now on Anchor. We're on everything, my friend. We, we are, are on everything. everywhere now. But I want to make it easier for you guys, so just go to thecoinboys.com and figure it out from there because it's a hub. Yes, uh, we're gonna have blogs and all this other stuff too. Uh, and also, you can join the Coin Family right there. Be on our email list. We're gonna start sending out some emails very soon. For those of you who have joined, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. And we'll be back to our normal schedule next week. But uh, Daniel, have you introduce our special guest yes, this week? Yes, sir. This is Ed Moncada, and the thing is. Um, I've been trying to get this going for a while now. Uh, it's been just scheduling conflicts and things like that. But I'm so excited, so happy to have been able to sat down and be, have been introduced to Ed, uh, who is the CEO and co-founder. And we'll get into how he, he found Blockfolio. We, this is the first time where I don't ask him, please explain what your app does. Because if you don't know what Blockfolio is, to be 100% honest, you shouldn't be in crypto. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's. I mean, and if you don't, you're gonna learn in this yeah, you're episode. You're gonna learn today, and go and immediately download the app as well. Yeah, check it out because if you're looking for a way to to look at your portfolio easily and a and in a in a, I I'd like to say in a millennial style because it's very slick, it's very fashionable, it's an aesthetically pleasing on the eye, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, we're with all these numbers and stuff in crypto, it makes it easy, but. Uh, I do want to also say that we're this interview was done at the Blockfolio office, which yes. we're really happy that they invited us. Yeah, it was really cool. We were able to head over to Blockfolio themselves, sit down. We saw their offices. We were, and you'll see the picture. You see us right there with Ed uh, in their in their Blockfolio center. But as you know, a style in our podcast is to really dig into more specific people that we have on the show, and we're going to learn a lot more about Ed and his backstory, starting with where he grew up. I, actually, I was born in Schenectady, New York. My dad was doing a residency out there. He's a doctor. And then uh, until I was like one year old. And then when I was one, my parents moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. So they basically moved to this like, you know, extremely conservative, uh, you know, state. Everybody's Republican. Uh, you know, they were immigrant family. And uh, and yes, yeah, so I grew up in Tulsa. Tulsa, though, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, I guess it's probably better than growing up in a big city. It's probably a lot harder to get in trouble. Really? Uh, yeah. Okay. But I'd imagine, you know, I mean, like, I don't know. What are they going to do? We're going to go out in the park and get drunk on the weekends or something, <laughs> right? Like, All right. Uh, and, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, so growing up as a, you know, with uh, the children of an immigrant family in the mid in, in, in Oklahoma, kind of a little bit of an outsider. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, but so, you know, my, my dad, my, my family is great and, um, Went to private school out there and then eventually made my way to UC Berkeley to study engineering. At what point were you in into technology? Uh, as, a, as a kid, was it something that your parents introduced you to or did you discover it? Because I don't, I don't see Tulsa as like a, a hub for like yeah. Silicon Valley. No, I mean like, I mean, I think I did like most of the stuff that like kids do. I, you know, play video games, except Com we had Nintendo back then. It was different. <laughs> That's what we had. That's yeah. what I grew up on. Um, you know, I was super passionate about skateboarding. There was really, the technology stuff didn't come until after Berkeley. So I went to, you know. That, that was the same with me as well. So I was just kind of curious as to how, how that was over there. And uh, you mentioned skateboarding. And I know we learned today before we started recording that you have a background in skateboarding. So could you, and you said, and I want you to kind of, well, not a background, like you're not a pro skater. No. But I, could well, you get let's, into Let's put it this way. Like when, as growing up, like, skateboarding was my first true love like i started skateboarding when i was 13 years old i did it until i don't know probably until my early 30s until my body was just like you need to stop you know in college my roommate his name is brian chung he's a doctor out in the in the east coast now but he was a, a professional skateboarder rode for uh, independent trucks spitfire wheels van shoes it was like for me 
as a skateboard aficionado, as somebody who loved it, like this was heaven. I was like, dude, I got so lucky. That's my buddy. And like, did I, you get any of that like extra swag that he had? Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, all the time. And, <laughs> and uh, pros would come into town and they'd like sleep in our dorm room on the floor. Sometimes it was like, it was pretty entertaining. And, uh, uh, so yeah, but what I, but it's funny because though this did contribute to like my, uh, uh, kind of, uh, affinity towards, uh, cryptocurrencies because skateboarding was a counterculture and at least back then it was back then you know we would it, it wasn't mainstream like it is today you didn't have parents trying to like have their kids become sponsored skateboarders like we were the outcasts and so we had you know people like chasing us out of malls you know for 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 riding around oh like, wow yeah and so it it was but what cracks me up about it though like this kind of translates over to crypto like when i first got into crypto i was drawn to it because of the sort of counterculture uh, uh atmosphere um and this was in late to early late 2012 early 2013 and back then i remember it's not like today like today you know you've got nasdaq working on projects like uh, uh you hear all you know fidelity all these like big names are in it like ibm like, yeah. just like everybody's in it now right yeah. but in 2012 2013 if i mentioned that I was in cryptocurrency, people look at you like you're insane. Like they're like, dude, that, that stuff, the government's not going to let it happen. It's going to shut down. I experienced that because I discovered crypto in like 2012 and everyone thought I was crazy. My parents, uh, my cousin, and then, you know, during the, the, the explosion, then they think guess, you're a genius. Gu guess where, <laughs> guess all the texts came from and all the calls, right. you know? So yeah, th they thought I was a genius, but now they don't. So, <laughs> but anyway, but so, so, um, at this point, you, you're at Berkeley, and you graduate. Where do you go from Berkeley? So I, yeah, so I, that was, let me see here. Graduate from Berkeley, I had, so I didn't have a, a computer science degree or anything. I had a, I had a civil engineering degree. Okay. Uh, I had the easy, easy engineering. What, were, what, was your, what was your original goal, and, like, what was your career aspiration uh, at that point? Honestly, like, uh, <laughs> my, I, I was always kind of, like, a really I broad uh, interests. Okay. Uh, grew up playing soccer a lot. Was really into sports. Also, you know, loved music. Uh, you know, was in a band, played bass guitar. Loved skateboarding. Um, really good at mathematics. You know, ended up going to Berkeley Engineering, and then like so. Uh, but I went to school, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I just said, uh, "Well, I'll do, I guess I'll do engineering." And my dad sure as hell wouldn't pay for like some liberal arts major right so, yeah 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 that's yeah. i've been there <laughs> <laughs> so i ended up studying civil engineering i was like oh you know building things is you know fun and i guess that was probably the the driving force behind it. i like to build stuff and so um i ended up being a project manager on an overpass in the silicon valley okay and i would go to lunch every day and i would see all these like uh people going to lunch that were working at tech companies. And this, this is around the time that the internet was first starting to kind of, uh, so 97, uh, you know, email internet was like first starting to get a little bit popular. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, and then I, and then I was like, wait a minute, like, you know, I had to be, in, it had to be at work at five thirty in the morning, six in the morning, like really early. And I was mm -hmm. there until like super late and you're working your ass off. Like, yeah. Just, and I'm like, man, this stuff looks a lot more fun. They have like a relaxed environment. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Let me look into this. Uh, so um, uh, this is around the beginning of the internet. And then I started having some ideas for like internet companies. And one of them, my first startup, uh, which I left um, uh, being a project manager was to, it was called uh, Venue Point. And the idea was like, we wanted to create, um, we wanna allow musicians to have profiles and be able like, I felt like, you know, uh, online booking of in the music industry should all be digitized it should you know and uh it should all be done over the internet we're way ahead of our time like you didn't even have like <laughs> streaming music back then yeah right? that's insane and so so yeah that was like a really painful lesson about like you know market timing like you can't be too early and so uh so that you know we raised some money for the company we got a product out and eventually the internet bubble imploded and uh, i learned a valuable lesson but but yeah and so you know, that company shut down. This is kind of another interesting story, actually. I totally forgot about this. We like interesting stories. Yeah. So, so we at, approve. At the, at the time, I, I'd, uh, as I was shutting down uh, Venue Point, I'd become friends with a guy who 
uh, had just sold his first company, like I was in the Bay Area, in San Francisco Bay Area, and he just sold his first company to Microsoft. His name was Tony Shea, and he was the CEO of a company called Zappos. Uh, it was actually- uh, a, The shoes? A, the shoe company. Yeah, so he ended huge up, deal. Yeah, huge so he, he actually, he is now. Back then, it was bef- before Zappos even existed, and he had just sold, you know, I was friends with him. We'd hang out with him. We had a mutual friend who was one of my fraternity brothers at Berkeley and who was his like childhood best friend, and that's how we met. We all got along, and he ended up becoming one of my really good friends, and I learned a lot about startups and internet companies from having conversations with him. So one day, we're coming back from a snowboarding trip in Lake Tahoe, and Tony says, Tony liked to play poker on the weekends or with his buddies, and he's like, hey, man, you should come play poker with me. I think you'd be really good at it. And that was the kind of, this was the kind of knack that Tony had that I noticed, I observed over time is that he had this really interesting way of like meeting people and very quickly knowing exactly how they would fit. <laughs> like wow. what they're really, what, what might, what, what makes them tick, what they're really good at. That, at least that was my observation. And so, uh, uh, so, and then of course he takes me to go play poker with him. And you know, this guy's like, I think he's a billionaire now. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. And, but we were playing on the weekends, or he would call me up. He was in San Francisco. I was in the East Bay, and he called me up. He like, let's go play some No Limit Hold'em. Or sorry, no, it was uh, Limit, Limit Text Hold'em. We were playing back then, like $3, $6, where you would like win or lose like 100 or 200 bucks. Yes. <laughs> right? I've, I've been at those tables before. <laughs> it's Keep in mind, the, the, the funny thing about it, to Tony's credit, mm-hmm. he had already sold his company to Microsoft for $270 million. <laughs> so he's just playing just to screw around with everybody. So we would go, yeah, it's like, come on, like we we, we go and play. And, uh, you know, and so here's the thing, like he was right. Like I ended up becoming, that became like, you know, we'd shut down my company venue point a little bit after that. And, uh, and I decided, I'd saw that there were professional poker players in the casino. I was like, Hey, I think I can do this. And so I started studying the game and it literally ended up being my profession from 2001 until 2010. And I wow, up, and nine I, years. And nine years, that was my sole source of income. And, you know, I started out playing small tournaments, small cash games, worked my way up. Eventually, I was playing at the World Series regularly. And eventually, I won a World Series of Poker, poker Bracelet. And I also, this was in 2005, in the 2000 Parliament Hold of event. And then, actually, that the, the thing that I actually think was the coolest thing is the next year, I got asked to be in the World Series of Poker video game that was by Activision. So I had to deal with Activision. What? Yeah. So yeah, I had my own character in a video game. Did they make your likeness in the game too? Like, did, were yeah, you a character? So they, they they had us come into this like uh, studio where they would do like voiceovers and they model three D model your your face and they'd have to you, like. Have, did they do a did they do a scan yeah, or okay? It was, it was like a scan. it was like a scan and then they'd have like these cheesy phrases that you had to say. <laughs> the game. And and then uh, I remember my nephew bought the game. He was so stoked about it. Yeah, and, yeah. And then uh, and then I played it. And I couldn't beat it. <laughs> and the only reason why is because I was so bored because it wasn't for real money. <laughs> yeah, when it's not for real money, it gets a little different. Uh, I do have a question about the World Series, though. Like, what was that like getting that bracelet? Because I have loved poker since I was a kid, since I was a child. And and then, I, of course, we all saw rounders, and we all, and then we, and then that that's when we started getting into seeing the ESPN World Series of poker and getting that little feeling, that action. What, how was it actually playing in the World Series? So. This is another thing. So I got drawn to poker. It was, it was I, I saw this counterculture again, right? Yeah. These guys, like people that are poker players are kind of like, you know, that they're the professional poker players. Yeah. You can tell that they're sharp guys, right? But they're not really mainstream. They're not. Yeah. You <laughs> they, start they, talking they, to them, you're like, oh, they make okay. their, they make their life a different way that like, you know, probably doesn't make your parents the happiest. No. Right. But they live their own life and they have this total freedom and they have like this bankroll. They go play poker wherever and they don't have a boss. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Like I'm, and then you know poker's odds and probability at least in the lower stakes or actually in all stakes but uh um and so um so yeah so the 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 it was a very free it was an incredibly free lifestyle there was very little responsibility other than like you had to protect your bankroll and find good games to play where you had a, a a mathematical advantage you know against your opponents and so uh and then the world series is just an extension of that it was pretty cool it, it it's at the Rio Casino in Las Vegas every year. Uh, actually, it used to be uh, Over the downtown bu- at the Horseshoes. A horseshoe. At Binion's Horseshoes. Binion's. Yeah. Binion's. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> and so they moved it to the Rio Casino, and like every year uh, around June and July, for about a month and a half, like the best poker players in the world come to Vegas 
and they would uh, you know play all different stakes uh, all different types of poker whether it's like Raz Omaha uh, no limit Texas Hold'em limit Hold'em mixed games and they would you know play all these different tournaments and see who won and ev- and every year I think there's probably like 60 or 70 pe- winners of these tournaments and each would get this World Series of Poker bracelet. I, I got super lucky, and in the 2000 Palo Hold event, I, uh, I won the event. I think it was maybe like 720 players or something like that. and uh, Which is relatively small compared to today. Compared to today. See, yeah. that was like, yeah, I had it easy back then. Like now <laughs> it's like, and uh, but the other cool thing was like the week before in the 1500 Palo Limit Hold event, I got 10th place. Oh, like I'm like I was got and that's really still close a good chunk. Like, I got really close to like back to back like two two bracelets in one Man. series. So that was that was that was pretty that was pretty fun. And it was it was also like that that event was on ESPN, and so it was televised. And so that was my life prior to to crypto. I I love. I mean, there's there's a lot of history there. I mean, you've been through a lot. I mean, whether it's you know you you had a startup, um, you were doing professional poker playing for nine years, ten years almost. And I guess the big question is, how did that kind of get you? When did you first hear the word crypto or Bitcoin? How did you start entering that that whole counterculture at the time? Like, what what did you leave poker for crypto, or did you just because it didn't sound like it's way too early for that? Like, so, what made you leave poker? So okay, so uh, I sh- in this is actually pretty relevant to like how I later began to really understand the significance of Bitcoin and blockchain technology. In 2006, there were the UIGEA laws, which were, that was when the US government decided they wanted to shut down online poker, and, uh, and they basically made it illegal for financial institutions in the US to move money in and out of online gambling sites, mm. right? And that basically, I mean, the way the poker works is you have, especially online poker, you have all these recreational players, you know, some person in Kansas wants to blow $200 on the weekend, he can do it with his like debit card or ATM card, but once you pull out that once you make that illegal, all the recreational players aren't going to jump through hoops to try to lose their $200 on the weekend, right? So what you end up having is like this whole base of like, you know, recreational players that gets eliminated and then it becomes pros playing against pros. And so in 2006, when that law happened, I was like, wow, this kind of sucks. Like it's going to change. Like basically, you know, my earn is going to go down and it's not going to be as lucrative to play anymore. And so I started thinking about like, you know, where, what are the next things that, uh, that are, are uh, what's another thing that I could do to, to make money uh, to, you know, and still have the freedom, you know, uh, that I have. And so I was like, oh, maybe I'll do a startup. I think that, you know, that's going to eliminate Always the answer, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a smart answer. I mean, if you could do it, I'd do it too. So first, I actually, so I actually had an, another startup before I discovered Bitcoin, which was called Unveil Games. And, uh, uh, it was it was like we decided we wanted to create a game for Facebook, and so in 2010 is when I quit poker and I decided to start it. And it was actually I presented the idea to Huck Seed, an ex World Series of Poker main event winner. He was one of my really good friends, and he became the lead investor in this idea. I'd seen like this like you know trend going towards medicinal marijuana, and I didn't want to get into any of the like I, I, I saw a clear wave going in that direction right it was interesting to me mm-hmm. right uh i don't personally smoke marijuana but i i was like you know uh i i saw that um and and i didn't want to start up a dispensary or anything like that but i i saw this this sort of gap in facebook because facebook's early days it was like 65 percent women and 35 percent men and a lot of people don't realize that social networks were predominantly female. And and then by the time I'd noticed like the game sprouting up on um, in 2010 on Facebook, I, s- I noticed most of them are female oriented. They were like Petville and Yoville and Farmville and all this stuff, right? And I was like, man, there really should be these like male oriented games like Grand Theft Auto and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And so I, I was like, wow, you should really have like a farm, like a, a version of Farmville that was focused on guys where instead of growing vegetables on the farm, you grew like, marijuana (laughs) and peyote and mushrooms and you could like pay off law enforcement and politician to get your heat down every time you made an act action on it that is genius i love it and so i was like man and i had a friend who represented uh video game developers because they had agents back then and so and so he was like ed this is a really good idea because you're right there is this gap there's going to be male-centric games on facebook 
and I was like, I don't know, man, let's take a shot at this and like try it out. And so we, we launched, we actually, you know, raised a little bit of money for it, launched the game, probably had a quarter million users. People loved it. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, it was more entertainment than anything. Right. And, yeah. uh, uh, like fan groups started sprouting up for it. It was called trafficking by the way. <laughs> ah, I got and a different, is it still available? <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's done. So here's what happened, right? So back then Facebook used to be able to like you, you, I think you remember in the early days, Facebook, you could like any event that you did on one of those games would like show up on your friend's newsfeed. And then it got to the point where like, it was like flooding the news feeds. And so the thing about the thing, yes. about, the thing about Facebook cares about the user experience a lot. Right. So when that started happening, they actually, so they got all these games like building on their platform. And then all of a sudden one day they flipped the switch and they said, you know what? You can no longer get your game events freely advertised on the newsfeed. You have to buy ads for them. And they eliminated it overnight. And so what it did is it basically, it taught me a valuable lesson of platform dependency, right? Yeah. And, and it basically, which by the way is an, uh, an important lesson that I eventually took to Blockfolio later and I'll explain how. Anyway, so, uh, uh, we ended up having to shut down the company because our business model changed overnight. Uh, we, were, you know, we were no longer going to get this free viral growth from the risky content that, you know, that entertained people. So I, you know, I, then it was like 2012 and I was like, and my friend Brian Mycon, who's a professional poker player, started a Bitcoin poker site and called Seals with Clubs. And he Which would, I've heard of. Yeah, and he would, he, would, he would post about it on his feed and Facebook and I'd shut down my company and I was like, man, what's this Bitcoin thing that he keeps like, you know, posting about. And it's like, it's a poker site. And I was like, man, maybe I'll just check this out. Like, so I reached out to him, you know, maybe should think Zuck as well, you know, for like changing their policies. <laughs> well, so see, that, you've like, been you through know, two dramatic shutdowns yeah. that completely changed what it is that you were trying to do and what you thought you could do for a while. Yeah. And then suddenly you had to change the game. Yeah. So your, I mean, your ability to adapt is insane. Yeah, that's that's I mean, this is like. You learn, you learn that, I mean, this is just startup nature. You just, you keep doing it and it's really just about like tenacity and hopefully you're not insane. <laughs> Can I ask a question about the game? Uh, because you had the shutdown, was it because that Facebook technically owned the rights to the game because it was through, because you said platform dependency? So it was, it was that Facebook like overnight basically told all, all our game, our business model was basically like, hey, we could sort of create this sort of risky content that was like entertaining like this marijuana is a little bit risky not sure. really that risky but and uh it's a video game but it, we felt it would get a lot of viral, free viral growth people would right. share it because it's so funny like all the different strains of marijuana that you sure. were growing and all this stuff right and and uh when they shut that off they said you can't do that you have to pay for ads like we literally had no choice we, we're at the mercy of what Facebook decides to rule. I guess my point, my question though was, how come you get and say let's let's just make it a game off of Facebook? Because That's that was my question. Yeah, so because that would cost a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> I figured it was just the cost so, at that point. Yeah, yeah, and so and at that point, you know, like and when you have free viral growth, it's like this kind of unique business model. Investors are like, well, they don't have an advertisement budget, and they're going to be able to have this grow really fast. Um, you know, because people will be entertained by it and share it. And so in their, in their news feeds. Um, and so it doesn't make it as interesting of an investment for investors. So it's like, Hey, yeah. we need more money, but now we're more like a normal game <laughs> without free viral growth. And so they, they like, like I said, overnight Facebook sort of flipped the switch that adversely hurt a lot of these small social game developers. And, and, you know, we were part of that carnage. And so then I, you know, like I said, it was just like, we were, totally dependent yeah. on this one platform and we were exposed like that. And so like now, like for instance, a Blockfolio, like we connect to 300 different exchanges to get the price information. We mm -hmm. don't have like a third party that provides us with the price information because we don't want to be dependent on anybody. Like if all of a sudden they have like an outage or something yeah. like Blockfolio is like, you know, nobody's getting their prices and then all of a sudden our Twitter's blown up and everybody's going crazy. Yeah. Like I've, I've, I've seen, I, I, I was with Blockfolio in the early days and we'll get to the, yeah. but like I've seen it crash, uh, but I'm sure it wasn't something that you had expected because it was just a crazy growth at the time. I'm certain that's what it was, but, oh, but yeah. trust me when that, when that happened and I was really addicted to my crypto and knowing the prices, I was like, what's going on here? man? <laughs> <laughs> it was like crack. But it was like a crack, like Chris Rock crack junkie. Yeah, basically, it was like, man, I need to 
know the prices now. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, it was interesting. So uh, so you you left you left Facebook and then you went uh, the Facebook gaming world and, and then went back into Seals with Clubs. Yeah, so I played. I, I put a Bitcoin in the Seals with Clubs poker site in maybe like March or April of 2013. I asked my, I think the price of Bitcoin, I think was $90 at the time. Oh my God. Because Brian sold me that one Bitcoin for a hundred bucks and he made 10 bucks on me. Oh, <laughs> a jerk. <laughs> oh, that was the best thing ever, man. Like I should thank this guy. This That's like, true, I guess. This guy did me the biggest favor in the world. That's true. Uh, uh, $10 nowhere near enough to like thank him. Uh, <laughs> so he, uh, and, and uh, I started playing on Seals with Clubs. I guess like the players on there were, they were, they must have been like really early Bitcoin adopters because they were really bad, right? <laughs> and at that oh, point, man. back in 2013, like all these like po- like all the poker players we know now, like, mm-hmm. you know, we know some some mutual friend stuff. They didn't know about it back then, so I guess I guess it was guys that got into it early because like they were bad. Yeah. And so I played poker for three months on there. And I turned that one Bitcoin into 150 bitcoins. In three months. Three months. My God, I was shout out, quick shout out. Uh, he, uh, Ed, and I have a have a mutual friend named Lior, and that's how we're, we're we've met, we've met today. A mutual poker playing friend. Mutual poker player playing playing friend, and uh, so th- shout out to Lior. Thank you, and I and I owe you money for our phone bill. <laughs> Anyways, so but but, uh, but yeah, I could ima- because he didn't know about it for a little while. But I but you know, gaming. It seems like gaming and gambling kind of pop up simultaneously with projects in crypto so it makes sense that seals with clubs would have just yeah crypto I mean, if you look at the early days of the internet it's like what was it, it was like porn and gambling right yeah that's all it was basically yeah. and <laughs> stuff for disney gaming was <laughs> gaming was getting into its things and online gaming was starting in the 90s mid 90s late yeah. 90s so again counterculture stuff yeah but uh one trend i'm noticing we've interviewed a lot of people and a lot of people's history goes back to poker yeah including daniel and yourself I think that's fascinating because we've met more than a handful of people that have. So I can explain a little bit as to why that probably happened, right? Because so in, in the poker world is, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of people traveling all the time to play the tournament circuit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And they're, you know, especially when you play in higher stakes, you have to carry a lot of money, right? And it's especially if you're going like overseas. So a lot of the European players come to the World Series of Poker. Yeah. Right. And they're bringing like 20, 30 K minimum, if that. And they don't want to deal with the headache of like wiring $30,000 like international and all this stuff. Right. And so once crypto came around, some of these guys were like, you know, they would have friends that were professional poker players in Vegas that had like in a lot of cash and safety deposit box so they could play Mm -hmm. whenever they needed. And they would like one friend would be like, hey, can I send you some Bitcoin? And the other guy's like, well, what's Bitcoin? And then he'd learn about it. Oh. And then it was like a means of like transferring that's an interesting like, see i thought it was for online but you've brought up a great point where it was like not for online gaming online gambling but for for before internet i started seeing it on online poker sites bitcoin deposits withdrawals i'd already knew about high stakes players that were like transferring like crypto between each other to like make it super easy for them to like travel overseas and stuff like that's that. that's awesome right? okay and so yeah and so uh i started hearing about that and i think that's kind of how it caught on and then, like, also, poker players are, like, always looking for some, you know, they're looking for th- ways to make money. Ever, yeah. Right? They're always, that's, I, and they're always and on so, and, and, you know, when a smart poker player, like, or, you know, poker players that, you know, people respect at the table is like, hey, man, I found this Bitcoin thing. There's a lot of conversation that happens at the table, too, and start explaining it. And then mm-hmm. other, other professional players are probably, you know, start figuring it out. And I, I don't know. It's like a... Uh, stuff spreads pretty quickly in the poker community, I think, because of all the table talk that happens. So there's a few different things that are probably going on at the same time. Online gaming started taking Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Transfers uh, overseas, like cash transfers, were eliminated. Uh, or carrying a lot of cash was eliminated, I mean. And then, like, you know, just the, the natural table talk. And so that's probably a lot of the reason why, like, poker players were very early adopters of the cryptocurrency. That makes that makes yeah. a ton of sense. Yeah. So, so... But you took it steps further just besides, uh, okay, using Bitcoin to play. You got more interested in it? Or? Yeah, so I made like 150 Bitcoin. Right? Yeah, that 150 Bitcoin. And also. then I was like, well, that's cool. And it's like $15,000 at the time. It wasn't a whole lot of money back then, right? No, but it was But I was like, I was like, well, I'm going like, to sell $10,000 worth of this and pay my like, rent or something, you know, and like my electric bills and bills. It was yeah. interesting, right? And that was, so when that, remember when 
I was talking about how like online poker, like the U.S. government has shut down moving money in and out of online gambling sites, mm -hmm. financial institutions from doing it. They prevented financial institutions from doing that. What ended up happening after that happened in 2006 was this sort of like shadow banking industry arose. It was sort of doing like this illegal stuff basically. And they were working with a lot of the poker sites to get U.S. customers to be able to move their money in and out of online gambling sites. And so like you'd always deposit really easy, but if you ever wanted to withdraw from one of the online gambling sites, it usually took like two weeks, three weeks to get your check. Yeah. it was, And that's if they didn't make a mistake. Yeah. It was, it was a major pain. Yeah. Right. So when I cashed out, I had a Coinbase account and when I cashed out from seals with clubs, it took 48 hours to go from my Coinbase account <gasps> to chase account. And that's when I was like, what the hell just happened? Because like I had seen what the, you know, you cut your transfer time down to a fraction of what it used yeah, to be. But I mean, like, it was, it was, uh, you know, this embryonic technology that nobody had ever heard of, and I didn't even understand at that time that it was like decentralized and what blockchain was. It was just like I just knew it was digital money called Bitcoin, and and when it when it went so fast, I was like, wait a minute, like this thing just circumvented all these U.S. this government effort to you know. Um, to snuff out online gambling. Yeah. And, and that was like, that's pretty big. Like, so that's when I started, like, maybe I should pay attention and let's study Bitcoin and, you know, learned about its decentralized nature and, uh, and, and started a, a study of blockchain technology and realizing, wow, like, and I, and I think that the two big questions I had at that time for me were, well, I, I started kind of realizing because of the convenience, it was immediately obvious to me that, wow, this could be very big, right? Mm -hmm. But there were two things I was worried about. One of them is, you know, can government shut this down, you know? And is there like a floor of demand, you know, to, you know, to us this, you know, Bitcoin is potentially super volatile and risky. And, uh, you know, and then I realized, well, actually, I'm getting a little sidetracked, but like, I realized there was a floor of demand. I'll explain where it came from. Uh, so for the first one, it was like, I was like, wow, the decentralized nature of this technology makes it like torrent networks, right? And if yeah. a lot of people know torrent networks exist. And I remember when they first came out in the early 2000s or late 1990s, people thought it was going to like kill the music and the film industry. Yeah, but that's a huge fear with Napster and all, all the yeah. things. Napster was centralized and so they were able to shut it down. Yeah. But there was like Nutella and LimeWire and all these other ones. P2P. Yeah, peer-to-peer -peer, uh, file system. Uh, file, um, um, file transfer systems and uh um and i realized wow like crypto is the same and i was like okay so it would take like collusion amongst governments to shut this thing down which is unlikely to happen right exactly or yeah. at least by the time they tried to do that it might be a lot bigger than it is at that time when i discovered it at 90 bucks yeah right and so the second thing i i i looked at was like you know is there a floor of demand and i started i think at the time it was either venezuela or argentina i don't remember there were like people that were selling condos down there for bitcoin and I started reading about that, and it was because they'd banned selling, transacting, and real estate. They'd banned doing it in the in the U.S. dollar, and uh, and the reason and the people in those countries were, you know, they'd had the value of their peso like wiped out like you know one or two times in the last generation. So to us, while Bitcoin seems risky to them, it's like, wow, this is like saving them. It's a haven for them. Yeah, right? it's it's helping yeah. it's helping people stabilize their income, even if they lose like you know, 60% of the money, it's better than losing the whole thing, right? Absolutely. So, and then I was like, all right, well, there's a lot of countries with massive currency instability that this is, that this is, you know, that are, that are going to have, that are, that are going to create demand for this. And then I was like, all right, well, this seems really interesting now. I'm, I'm going to, you know, start getting into it. And then I started like getting on Bitcoin talk and like trying to find, you know, all the, the new kind of like applications of, blockchain back then it was totally different than it is now like now it's like data ownership like smart contract platforms i mean mm -hmm. back then it was like you had bitcoin you had some forks you had litecoin like i think it was like you know namecoin and a few other ones uh, and uh and then i found this one called darkcoin which was the first anonymous uh, anonymous cryptocurrency and uh like and true true anonymity it, it was, uh, I mean, there are better Anon technologies that have sprouted up since. That mm -hmm. one was CoinJoin technology. Later, you had Monero with ring, ring signatures. Yeah, yeah. And then you had Zcash with zero knowledge proofs, you mm -hmm. know. 
and there are trade-offs, I think, amongst all, all of these. But yeah, so I, I came across Darkcoin. And, uh, and uh, then I started investing. There, at that time, I probably was, the two things that sort of happened at the same time in 2014. This is 2014 now. Uh, I went from Bitcoin, and I, started, I, I got into Litecoin, I got into Darkcoin, and I got into a few other ones. And, uh, and the two things that kind of happened around this time for me were, one, is I got really involved with Darkcoin because I got, I got very invested in it with mm -hmm. some friends. And, uh, and I wanted to see it do well. And the second thing that happened is because I was invested across so many cryptocurrencies, I was like, man, tracking. I, I had this ritual every morning where I had to log in all of my exchange accounts and like check my balances. And it was a major pain. And I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. Like there should be an app where you can track all cryptocurrencies on all exchanges and you can pull up your balance within a split second. And that was, uh, you know, what eventually led to Blockfolio being created. That so. was your, is your, fr it was your frustration <laughs> behind all that that you said. Yeah, man, it was. I need that quick fix. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because I, I'm like, I think I'm a little further back than you, right? I, I'm, I discovered it on Reddit, and I've said that many times on here. But it was a time where I also thought was like, can I like, I had to sign into things and check things and like. I guess I didn't think of, I thought about it maybe for a split second, like, oh, an app would be cool, but it's cool to, to like, you're kind of like seeing things that people need before they need them. So you got a head start before everyone, because now you look, there are third party blockfolio type of things, you know, there are other portfolio apps, but were you essentially the first, was this idea like kind of yours? Like, so you think? at that time, all the port, all the portfolio tracking apps, except for maybe like two or three of them were Bitcoin only. That, this is crazy. This is like, hey, what's the price of Bitcoin? What's the hashing rate? Like the, yeah. the, 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 hash, the hash rate? Hash rate. Yeah. And so it was like, and, and I, I, was, uh, I was like, man. And there, there were maybe two or three that had like, one of them had like six cryptocurrencies. The other one might have like 12. And at the time, there were probably 200 cryptocurrencies, you know? And Now there's you know, and, an know, endless amount. Yeah, and I was invested in probably 20 of those shit coins. Uh, I had two, fr well, so actually even before Blockfolio, it wasn't like we set out and built Blockfolio. It was a, um, an investor of Blockfolio, and now his name is Richard, who was also one of my friends that I introduced to Darkcoin. Uh, he, uh, he showed me this app called Pocket Crypto, and it was like he found it on Bitcoin Talk, and it was just the home screen of Blockfolio. And uh, it was, and he was like, hey man, there's this kid and he's at University of Kentucky and it's just this little balance checker and it's really convenient. And uh, he's like, you should check it out. And I looked at it and I was like, wow, this is interesting. And I tried it out. It was really, it was really, you know, convenient. But it was, remember, it's like a little, is an, is an engineer at, you know, University of Kentucky that yeah. designed this thing. So it was designed by an engineer. It wasn't like, didn't, it wasn't as pretty as Blockfolio is today. No, no, no. It was, there was no design uh, but, behind it. <laughs> but, uh, and so I asked Richard, I'm like, uh, who is this kid? And he's like, well, I, I don't really know him, but he, I know him through Bitcoin talk through the, the private chat. And he's like, but everyone's will ask for a feature and he'll like get it in there the next day and I'll send him a hundred dollars worth of crypto. His, I was like, well, I guess this kid can code. Right. So, uh, and then I, I tried, I tried it out and I looked at it. And I was like, wow, man, I, 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 at that time, me and my friends, like we believed in, like we, we understood that blockchains could alter how databases interacted. So we had this idea that like, at least we could see that like a future where there were like 10,000 public blockchain assets. Like we felt that this was going to impact every industry on the planet. And so he introduced me to the kid and like his name's Peter. He's my technical co-founder. He's back here at the oh. office. <laughs> and, uh, and I reached out to him on Bitcoin talk and we had a call and I was like, Hey, listen, I think, uh, I think we can build an, a business around pocket crypto. I think we should rebrand it. And, uh, let me bring in a couple of guys. One of them was a designer. The other one was a friend of mine, Charlie, who was, was the pre technically the previous CEO of Blockfolio. Um, and, you know, he's this really organized guy that was, like, really great at, like, moving things forward. And so we all got together, and the four of us were the sort of the co-founders of Blockfolio. And for from 2014, when I was introduced to Peter, until it took about a year of us all work on it part-time. And then in 2015, we launched Blockfolio. I have a question. So when you approached him and were like, you know, I think this could be bigger than what you've created and what you created is great. Was he kind of shocked that someone was approaching him to look further into this or was he expecting something like that? So he really believed in crypto too, right? So right. we were kind of like kindred spirits. Like he, that's why he built the thing. And we were all like, we see this future where there's going to be a lot of blockchain assets that people want to track. And I just, you know, I think 
um, let me remember, at that point I was already involved in Darkcoin. I was already on the Darkcoin Foundation and he was a fan of Darkcoin as well. Okay. So he thought it was really neat that this guy from the Darkcoin Foundation like reached out to him. And uh, and he was just also, he's a super nice guy. And cool. He's a super reasonable guy. And was, I don't know. I, I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I just kind of sort of presented a business idea. And I said, we're going to like pull together, I think we ended up getting about $45,000 in investment that I put up a little bit of money. Sure. Uh, Charlie, the other co-founder did as well. And uh, a couple of friends did. And, and we just decided we don't know when this big wave is going to come in. This is the one thing we knew, but let's just build something that's great for us. And if it's, if it does eventually happen, maybe we'll like, you know, a lot of people use our app. This is the crazy thing. I remember now. This is actually really fun to look back on. We used to daydream about the day when we were like, oh, man, maybe one day we'll get like 100,000 users. That'd be insane. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, we could, and then we could like, you know, sell the app or something. Like we kind of did it for ourselves at first and like was, wasn't even like we thought it could be a business, but it wasn't like we set out to be a business. It's not like we were right. like, we're going to charge people on day one. That's usually what you do at a business. We're like, no, nah, let's just make it for free and let's see if we can get people to use it. And, um, yeah, in the early days, it was like, like I said, there was only like 200 cryptocurrencies. Eventually, it kept growing and growing and growing. We had to hire customer support. We had to like all these logos. We had to like update constantly. People were hitting us up about new coins that were sprouting up. I mean, 2017 was madness. Right. It was like, that was like a crazy wave. But it was, what was, what, what was, what I thought was really interesting is, um, so like I'd done a couple of startups, right? One of them was way too early on the vision, like way too early, right? And then the other one, we ended up shutting down Unveiled Games. I think actually in hindsight, like we were, it was clear that the wave was there, but we were too late, you know? Right. And Blockfolio, we were there, it was right in time. We we're the only ones doing this. So when this wave came in, like we had built this boat and we were the only professional game in town and everybody started recommending it to all their friends because there wasn't any real competing app that was doing everything that, everybody wanted and so it really is it's crazy it's a lot like surfing right it's like you want to time the wave just right and um and i i believe i, I saw a video with ray kurzweil and he's the i believe he's the chief scientist at google right and he was talking about like you know this guy's world-renowned like researcher he's he's known because he's predicted so many technologies early on and he talks about like the optimal timing you want to have before like the big wave comes in and says you want to be building something about three years prior to that. Right. And he studied, it was studying it and he was like, he predicted like Google even existing before it happened because the predecessor to the internet was called DARPANET. There's a bunch of scientists that were like send out communications to each other that were all connected. I think they were connected. The universities had <clears throat> these sort of, I guess, like DARPANET connections where they could communicate. And he was noticing that on on a week over week or month over month, it was like compounding. It was it was growing exponentially, like the amount of communications that were happening. And he was like, if the amount of information that's transferring keeps growing exponentially like this, at some point there's going to be so much information that you're going to need to like categorize it and have search engines so that people can like sift through it all, right? Which was like before Google. And so I saw these videos and I was like seeing that like the optimal timing was you know, three years. It's not like we set out to like time block folio three years ahead. It just coincidentally, it happened to be like, you know, we started building it in 2014. Right. <laughs> and, and yeah. yeah, 2017, it's like, you know, and I was like, three away. years. I was blown yeah. away. Yeah. I was like, all right, I've done two startups. One of them was way too early, not three years. One of them was way too late, not three years. And the one where was that? It turned out like just right. And I was like, I found that really fascinating, you know? And it was, I mean, like I said, it was good fortune for us, but I mean, that's part of also having tenacity as a entrepreneur because like, you know, you're going to change things around, mix things up, try to figure it's like a lab, you know, and uh, timing's everything apparently. Right. Yeah. So in the early days, when you first, re when you first released the app, you make the app and you release the app, how did you get people to hear about it? How did you get people to know it was just strict word of mouth? So we actually ran ads for two months and we spent like $150 each month. This isn't <laughs> end of worth the investment. I don't know yeah. which one's more of a rip up. This the $10 in, this or is, <laughs> this was in 2015. We were like, let's seed a little user base. We're going to put a telegram channel up and we're going to talk to everybody and we'll be like, what do you like? What do you not like? And we would like 
get their feedback and constantly be trying to iterate the app uh, and improve it based upon what we what we heard from them, right? And uh, that was the only money to date that we ever spent on paid user acquisition. Wow. Right. $300. That was it. Just 150 for two. Wow. We have five point, over 5.5 million downloads now. Nice. So, yeah. So that was, that was, that was crazy. And that was, like I said, I mean, a couple other key decisions, um, you know, one of them was choosing the name Blockfolio because back then, like, you know, the big names, like we could have been like coin something. Yes. You know, it actually turned out to be great because it, like, the second you say it, it like, you know exactly what it is. Yeah. Almost like if you're in any way, know anything about crypto. And, uh, and I think it's been really helpful. Like we've had a lot of organic downloads because of it. Well, I think a good way to, to notice how like it, everyone knows the word it's in memes. It's like, I'm checking my block. People on Twitter say I'm checking my block folio today. I'm not checking my block folio today. Like it's, it's very much a part of the, the social culture yeah. now. They're like, delete your block folio. Yeah. <laughs> delete it. Delete it now. Don't look at your block. The markets folio. are cashing. It's um, block folio's fault. I guess since we're kind of like the app was six, when did you see the success of the app? Man, it was crazy. The growth just started happening. It seemed like everybody was using it. And, uh, um, yeah. Okay. So I remember when it was, it was when the time where I was like, wow, this is getting big is when 2017, we finally raised a little bit more money. I think it was like maybe March of 2017. We raised about Mm -hmm. $300,000. Like, Everybody was still like Peter was still in Kentucky working remote and uh, we'd hired uh, my friend Danny Horowitz, who is an ex-professional poker player to come in and help us do uh, uh, business development. And we were like, maybe we can run ads through Blockfolio. Let's start reaching out to a lot of these projects doing ICOs. We have a, you know, they're raising $30 million with like 2000 participants. Well, we've got like, you know, 50,000 monthly active users and they're all people who might want some of these ICOs. Sure. Uh, finding quality ICOs was a whole different story, but, uh, <laughs> which at some point I do want to get you on to figure that out because yeah. we're still trying to figure that out. So, so he, uh, so we went to consensus, the big conference in New York that may, right. Yeah. And we were super excited because we we're like, Oh, we're, we're real business now. Like we're starting to do business kind of big boy business kind of things. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to a conference and like meet people and see what we can do. And, uh, it was and we get there Sunday night and Monday morning was the first day of the conference. And we wake, we were all excited to go and we wake up and our app wouldn't load. Oh no. Way. And the servers were crashing because there were so many people that were like on the app. I was there that day. <laughs> it, was, it was a very sad day, but, uh, but I mean, I didn't know that you guys had been as established as you were. I was, I gave you guys credit cause I'm like, who else is doing this? They weren't expecting this big explosion. Like they'll fix it eventually. Just everybody yeah. sit down and calm down. But I remember I, that. I, I think at that time, I think we hit like a hundred thousand monthly active users. We were probably, if I had to guess, I mean, we were doing 50% DAU over MAU. So we probably had about 50,000 daily active users at that wow. time. So we ended up, we ended up raising 3.15 million. We had a bunch of great investors, founders fund, DCM, um, came on board as well. They were the other big check. And then we started leveling up the team. Uh, and then we brought over, there was a company called Flipagram that had raised $70 million and <clears throat> was acquired by another company called, an Asian company called ByteDance. And around that time, their their earnout period ended. So it means like the people that had equities, the founders and stuff were free to go. Oh, okay. And they were, they were this big feed. It was like an Instagram competitor. Right. That, yeah, they, I remember. I remember Flipagram. And a they had. Bit. They had. I think two hundred million downloads, thirty-six million monthly active <sighs> users. They were huge, right? And uh, um, around that time, and also around that time, I had like wanted to start building Blockfolio Signal. So this was late, early two thousand eighteen, might have been February, mm-hmm. and the the head product guy at Flipagram uh, reached out to me through a VC that I knew. Mm-hmm. And he basically just showed up at our doorstep and was like, Hey man, I want to come work with you. I really believe in crypto and I've been looking at your app and I think we can make it much better. And it turned out that like he had all the skills that like, I was like, I got this block folio signal thing I want to create. And I think there's a lot of users that are going to come in the future. And it was literally like, this was one of the moments in like a company where you're just like, 
it was like the universe was on our side. Like this guy showed up and then after he showed up, he brought over the co-founder CTO of Flippogram, who is now our CTO at Blockfolio. And then they brought over their design director, who is now our design director at Blockfolio. Wow. And they brought over like three of their engineers, right? Like they basically got the best of the bench, right? And that's like, you know, recruiting is, and, and not only that, they'd all work together. So they all liked each other. And sometimes when you bring a, a, you know, and they were all experienced, like our junior team looked up to them because they had all this massive experience. So like it all just worked out very, it fit very perfectly and harmoniously. And it was like, that stuff was just like pure luck. And if you're a poker player, it's like getting a one outer. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> getting that, the, get that river at the end. Uh, the, you did what I've seen done in television a couple of times. Like, you know, Chuck Lorre, he created Two and a Half Men, Big Bang Theory, all these. Big, but <laughs> yeah. that's how I feel he's had this success because the crew has been going from show to show to show, just creating these wonderful. So when you have when you do have a good team and that's is for anything just beyond crypto, it, it's powerful. And, and it seems like you have gotten that nice rhythm. And, and I've we were lucky enough to, to get the the. Um, the beta of Blockfolio 2.0 nice. before you did that. And, and I was like, this is a significant difference. It's clean. It's beautiful. It's not, and of course it functions wonderfully and you got the signal thing going on. So yeah. very well done. Yeah. And so it was, uh, by the way, that product guy that came over from Bluegram, his name is Jonathan Chu. He's our VP of product now. Mm-hmm. Like literally had he not reached out to us, like, I don't think there's a good possibility that Blockfolio might not even be here. Wow. You know? Because, then we end up building Signal and Signal, for those of you who don't know Blockfolio Signal, we realized that we had such broad reach that we could create a communi- direct communication channel, one directional communication channel between token projects and the users. And we have just under 400 token teams broadcasting on that now. And that was, that was a big differentiator in the market because we were now like a network. We're no longer just connecting price speculators with exchange information. We now had all the major groups of the ecosystem, the token projects, speculators, the exchanges, we have publications, news publications, journalists uh, on there now. And so, and so when you're raising money, like, you know, the differentiator mattered and creating a network is, you know, something that venture capital firms are like, wow, this could be very valuable if crypto does go mainstream and they have the broad, like, you know, a, a broadly used network, um, like there's there's tremendous value, a lot more value that could arise from that than just like an app, right? And so that we got very fortunate there. And like I said, I mean to me, like I look back and it's like sometimes it's a bit of a whirlwind. And you don't realize like how far you've come in so many years. Like it just because you're so busy, just keep trying to push things forward. But but I do recognize that like you know some of it, some of it is pure luck. You've built something absolutely amazing in my opinion something that was needed you you, you were part of uh, you were part of a solution to like an addiction that we all had but but um now you're at blockfolio 2.0 and you have the signal where people where we can directly reach out to or not re- directly get news from the different coins and things like that from different tokens and projects um where do you uh, was there anything that was sort of a surprise to you that ended that that getting here was anything sort of a surprise or was it all kind of planned out or or like how many surprises have you had in this project? Oh man, it, it sounds like a surprising journey to me. I mean, you've been through you went through the the trial and error of all this because you started companies and they didn't go through and and I feel like is this the third would this be the third yeah this is this third company wow they always say that the threes are always important third time's a charm I helped out a lot with Dash though and with their you know a lot of what was going on there I was on the on the one of the founding board members of the Dash Foundation right which was Darkcoin originally Darkcoin originally and then so they're they're very well known for their governance and treasury model they're the first one of the first if not first voting they're the first voting and treasury platform um, which was sort of like they were taking a portion of their mining rewards to let token holders vote on projects that and that would be funded by the mining rewards to help advance the, the cryptocurrency. And so that idea kind of co-originated at the board level. And uh, Evan, the core developer, loved it. And him and one of the other board members, Fernando, wrote the white paper. And then they built a platform. And now it's an incredible engine 
that's been driving a lot of growth in that it's, they've created an ecosystem around it, like around their, their governance platform. Do you think in the future we're going to be all universally crypto or there still be uh, fiat or fiat uh, money still existing? Will both exist, you think, still is, is a big question. And I think Daniel wanted to ask that. And I think it's a good question to ask. So what do you think of that? I don't know. I mean, I, could, I feel like not everybody is going to have cell phones in the world, right? So there True. will still be, you know, there'll, there'll still be probably some need for fiat for quite a while. Um, when is the flipping going to occur? <laughs> yeah, that, I, would, I would never ask you that because nobody can figure that out. But yeah. I just, I didn't know, you're, but you do have a point. Not everybody's going to have cell phones. So we're going to need another form of currency no matter what yeah. to help those people. But the goal eventually would be to get technology like that to yeah. everyone around the world. But basically most, I, I see like the tokenization of like a lot more than we think is going to happen right now. Okay. I mean, I think some things are obvious or like, you know, real estate titles yeah. are going to be on the blockchain. They'll probably be anything ER notarized has ERC 721 token, non-fungible token. That's got unique attributes. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that all that's going to be on the blockchain. There's going to be, <clears throat> you know, voting rights that you're entitled to when you evidence ownership of these coins are going to be stored in like, you know, regulated and insured custodial services like, you know, Fidelity or Coinbase at that time and stuff like that. And so that's, you know, but that's probably going to be 20 years out, you know, yeah. 15, 20 years We're still out. pretty far. out. <laughs> yeah. But that's just like, you know, if you look at the internet in 1999, it's just like Uber was still a ways out. <laughs> oh my God. They were, it was like, um, do you ever play uh, the trivia show HQ on the phone? It's a, it's a lot. It. You've I've heard never, of it? I've never played it, though. It's a good example of something new that was thought about, but technology wasn't, wasn't there yet. And now technology is there where you could live stream a game show and millions of people. I think they reached two million on one show. Oh, wow. On their app. But the technology could not hold million people on an app streaming. So now they, that's what the, the guy who created it, who actually created uh, a part of Vine and Twitter, um, he... Uh, he he was just blown away that without the technology we wouldn't be able to do it. So same with crypto. Without the technology, it finally got there to do digital. Digital money has always been a thing. Uh, gaming is interesting, and you know, like Brock Pierce, he was do, gaming's been doing digital trading for years, mm -hmm. and just not on the level that we're exchanging money and and like buying things. But you were doing digital trading. But I don't know. I just I'm just I'm I'm fascinated by technology. And Daniel, I like to think that this show is not just about crypto it's a sense of technology so your technology is is reaching the right point at the right time the right moment with something like you said you kind of i like the whole counterculture idea but i guess my main and final question or our final question is what does the future hold for you your everything is is going well and i know that it's been a rough year but what is the what do you see the far future for blockfolio so i think we're going to focus on blockfolio signal i mean but we also want to service the token projects. Start figuring out, you know, features that are going to help them, uh, you know, connect and better service their token economies, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that to me is sort of like the dream because now we have this app that's like, I think people know block people share blockfolio with like their parents if they want to get involved in crypto. They're like, check this out, get on here, try it out, you know. And it's sort of like has helped push adoption, I think, in some way. It sort of legitimized cryptocurrencies because we made them sort of feel like stocks yeah. early on. And then, like, so now we have the opportunity to help, like, bring, you know, features or functionality to token projects that are going to better help them service their token economies. The communication block layer, Blockfolio Signal, is just the first step in that. And we want to build more and more features there. Um, you know, we can do things like really powerful polling, different things that, you know, eventually have commenting on the signal feed. Uh, you know, we're doing a lot of research because we want to not invite like the toxic fake giveaways that you see on other social media yes. platforms. Right. We've given away pizza. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing that we've done. But I think, I think I don't, you know, I have some ideas of where it's going to go, but I think what will, what you guys will probably see is like, we hope it's, Something that everybody is like, wow, Blockfolio is great to its users, mm -hmm. uh, really looks after them, uh, you know, uh, and also is helping token projects connect 
and you know deliver features and functionality to the users that you know they benefit from that proximity that help the whole ecosystem that's actually you know we have a long view and like if we can position ourselves like that we're not seen as like you know they're all about the dollars yeah even though like it's just like we're patient about it as a business it's just like there's so much more the ecosystem needs than to us just starting to try to figure out how to cash in today man daniel that was awesome first of all cool that we were not in our normal Coinboy studio. We actually were at the Blockfolio office yes. doing an interview. It was really cool. Um, they were very kind from the moment we got in there. Uh, it was really sweet. Well, it'd be really weird if they were mean. But I've, but we've been <laughs> we've been in places That's where true. like these guys are dicks. But, <laughs> but, but were... doing it at the office with Ed and kind of like seeing their day to day, it's like this is real. Yeah. This place exists. Yeah, it's not a hope and a dream. Yeah, yeah, it's a real part of crypto. It's and here we awesome. are. Awesome. It was yeah. awesome. Uh, I learned. A ton. It was very inspirational hearing his story. Um, basically, hearing how he did have he did have successes prior, but he adapted to the fail not the failures of to the circumstances that that caused his businesses to end for whatever reason. Right. He he adapted. He prevailed. He kept on moving, and he didn't stop. And and it's created this. Um, I, I wish Blockfolio a ton of luck in the future. I don't see it going anywhere because it's not one of those things that 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 relies on relies on the technology. It's just following along with you and and informing you. It's a great direct source of information to the tokens to the coins that you are following that you're invested in. And I think one of the themes about his story is that he kept saying, "That's a funny story. Let me tell you <laughs> That's about it." I love it. it. Uh, so he had a lot of fun. I mean, listen. Yeah. I think the biggest takeaway for me, though, uh, being a person that probably was in crypto around the same time he was. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't have his, you know, I didn't his go on the poker site and have 150 bitcoins. <laughs> but um, I I knew how the space was back then. I feel like Ed had the same, you know, he mentioned how it was just so different. Yeah. And he actually walks us through his process and how he got there. And mm -hmm. it's super cool. So thanks again for checking it out. Uh, I want to thank Blancfolio for having us. Ed. Uh, thanks so much. And of course, Daniel, thanks for joining me as your cohort podcast partner in crime. Oh, wow. Oh, you got it out. That, that was Did great. That? You got it out, bro. Good job. Um, again, everyone, check out thecoinboys.com. Uh, we have more stuff coming. Uh, this year has only started. Yeah, we are very excited for the rest of this year. We'll catch you guys next week. See ya. Bye. Bye.